Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is Season 6, Episode Number 2. I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast is produced by the Donovan Hair Academy. It was created for the hair loss practitioner. And for all those who wish to dive into the fascinating and ever-changing world of hair loss. Each week, I review studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you make sense of them, and give you my thoughts on just how a given study might help change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. Today, our theme is real-world data. And to understand how real-world data complements randomized controlled trial data. The references for these studies that I'll discuss today will be in the show notes that accompany this episode. And before we dive into the episode, let me remind you that the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. So do we really need real-world data or data from the clinic, or is randomized controlled trial data really sufficient? Well, as you might know, I'm a big fan of evidence. I'm a big fan of good evidence compared to mediocre evidence or poor evidence. I occasionally find myself unable to sleep when I see randomized controlled trials that answer key questions in the world of hair loss. On the contrary, I find myself extremely nauseated and sometimes unable to eat or sleep when I come across studies that generate false conclusions because of poor study design. Today I'd like to highlight why we need a variety of studies in the hair research world. And not just the much-loved randomized controlled trials. That real-world data complements the randomized controlled trials that are needed to lead to drug approval. So we need both randomized controlled trials and real-world data, and that's really the topic of today's podcast. We often give RCT, or randomized controlled trial data, a big thumbs up when it comes to the types of studies that we need to generate good evidence. And that's true because randomized controlled trials really are very important studies, and they're often viewed as one of the best research methods to make meaningful understandings of the relationship between variables in clinical studies. But today I'd like to review why I feel that we need both randomized controlled trials and real-world studies in the field of hair loss, and why the two types of studies are in fact complementary. So first let's talk about what are randomized controlled trials and what are real-world studies. Well, as you know, randomized controlled trials are prospective studies that measure the effectiveness of a specific intervention or treatment. It's a study that randomly assigns patients into an experimental group or a control group. And real-world studies, as defined by the FDA, are types of studies that are collected from routine patient care. Studies collected by looking in charts, looking in electronic health records, medical data claims, from disease registries looking at actual clinical data from people that have gone through treatments in the clinic. Both randomized controlled trial and real-world data are both important. They both have their advantages and they both have their disadvantages. And I'd like to briefly review the advantages and disadvantages of both. 
Let's first start by talking about RCTs, or randomized controlled trials. So RCT data is generally viewed as the best method to try to determine a cause and effect relationship. RCTs provide the most reliable evidence on the effectiveness of an intervention, and they're widely viewed as the gold standard by which the efficacy of a drug is evaluated. And you're probably well aware that the FDA requires RCTs for most drugs to be approved. They need randomized controlled trials. The AMA Manual of, of Style, really a go-to for how studies are done, tells us that randomized trials generally yield the strongest inferences about the effects of medical treatments. And the AMA Manual of Style instructs us that randomized controlled trials may use terms such as effect and causal relationships. And that differs from observational studies, where the AMA Manual of Style states that observational studies cannot lead to causal inferences and should be described in terms of associations or correlations to avoid any sort of cause and effect relationship. So that's really important because it reminds us that RCTs are powerful because they can lead to us to attribute cause and effect type relationships. What are some benefits of RCTs? Well, they're great because they minimize the chances of bias and confounding. They minimize it, they don't eliminate it. And it's the best type of study to reduce bias and control for confounding. There are downsides to RCTs. Randomized controlled trials are highly controlled. They're standardized. They're highly monitored. They have specific inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. So they don't necessarily represent all the patients that you're going to see next week or next month or next year. They represent a subset of very carefully selected patients. So they may not be generalizable, the results that is, to all patient groups. So RCTs offer proof of efficacy only under very controlled conditions. And it's possible that results might not reflect the effects of a treatment in the real world or in other groups of individuals that weren't enrolled in the trial as part of the inclusion criteria. Other disadvantages of RCTs is they're very costly. They have study coordinators, study nurses. They're carefully controlled at each step. Costs rise very, very quickly. RCTs evaluate only short-term outcomes. Some of the RCTs that we hear about in the hair world are 24 weeks, 36 weeks, 52 weeks. Some are longer, but most of those longer studies aren't RCTs, they're extension studies. So most randomized controlled trials against a placebo are fairly short. So they're not studies that provide us with long-term side effect data against a placebo. And so if you want to know if a drug increases the risk of cancer over the long run or heart disease or Parkinson's, you're probably not going to get that from an RCT because the RCT is too short. You're probably going to get that from real-world data. So there's probably never going to be a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled hair study that's going to show you that a hair loss drug increases the chance of cancer because RCTs are not long enough. But real-world clinical data 
can help determine if there's a possibility of some sort of association. The other problem with RCTs is they often use convenient study endpoints. They often use study endpoints that are the best for the company or for the trialist to prove that a drug helps. Now, many of the endpoints are fantastic that, that we have in our trials of various types of hair loss. Many of the endpoints make sense. There's nothing really wrong with them. But we have to remember in randomized trials in the world in cancer and heart disease and hair loss and neurologic disease, that endpoints are often chosen as those which are good for the trial to show a difference or a significant, statistically significant difference between the placebo or the standard of care. And if a study can show that an endpoint occurs more commonly with the drug compared to placebo or some other comparator, then you have a success. And success means that it's more likely to receive regulatory approval. So that's important to remember as we're looking through RCTs. And as we go about together over time, together in the Evidence-Based Hair podcast, we'll talk a lot about RCTs as well as real-world data. And we'll talk a lot about endpoints. And we want to make sure we understand what is the primary endpoint, why was it chosen, and what are secondary endpoints. RCTs are not free of bias. They can have their own bias. And there's many types of bias, allocation bias, performance bias, assessment bias, attrition bias. Nowadays, if an individual or a group is going to conduct a randomized controlled trial, they need to register it. And these sort of mandatory trial registrations are really important. Because these trials often need to be registered, generally always need to be registered in order to be published, and generally always need to be registered in order to ethically conduct the trial. And it seems to be improving the quality of RCTs that are being done. But nevertheless, there is a chance of bias that remains. And that bias may be slightly more likely in lower impact factor journals than higher impact journals, according to studies that have been done. One of the reasons I wanted to devote episode two of season six to understanding real world data and RCT data is to remind you that not everyone is quite so infatuated with RCTs. RCTs or randomized controlled trials are really, really important in our field. We can't move this field along without them. They're extremely important. A well-conducted, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study is an incredible thing in our field to really understand causation. And there's no study that I would rather read than a, a beautifully designed, randomized, controlled trial. But we have to remember some of the limitations. And I'd like to speak a little bit more about RCTs before we move on to talk about real-world data. And probably one of the most important things that one can do when evaluating the published medical literature, no matter what journal article it is, is to approach it with a slight degree of skepticism. And I think that's important. As human beings, we want to approach life with a certain amount of openness. But when it comes to reviewing clinical studies, 
whether randomized control studies or observational type studies or case reports, we need to approach it with a certain degree of skepticism. That's really important and that's really healthy, in my view. I'd like to review some fascinating papers that I'll include in the show notes, which get us thinking about RCTs in ways that perhaps you might not have thought before. A nice paper in 2018 by Krauss titled, Why All Randomized Controlled Trials Produce Biased Results, is a very nice paper, which gets us thinking a little bit more about the types of bias that occur in RCTs. Krauss reviewed 10 of the most cited RCTs in the world, and many of these RCTs, if not all of them, had a big influence on public policy. And Krauss concluded in this paper that these 10 world-leading RCTs produced biased results by illustrating that participants' background traits were often poorly distributed between trial groups, and the trials often neglected alternative factors that contributed to the, alt- the outcome, and that some of the trials were only partially blinded or even unblinded. Krauss's main point in that 2018 paper was that researchers and policymakers need to become better aware of the broader set of assumptions, biases, and limitations that are in trials. And a number of authors recently have shared a view that RCTs probably have different degrees of trustworthiness. Some are extremely trustworthy, some are a bit flawed, some are seriously flawed, and some are fake. There are some pretty nice RCTs out there. These are the ones you print out. These are the ones you print out 65 times because you have copies all over the place. There are some pretty nice RCTs out there in the medical literature. But one thing they don't teach you in medical school is that some RCTs are not so good. Some authors have suggested that one out of every four RCTs have major problems. It's now thought by some that one out of every four RCTs contain so many problems that their findings should be ignored, and some are felt to be fake. And these sort of RCT findings work their way into systematic reviews and change how medicine is practiced. And some of the world leaders of clinical trials have estimated that up to 40% of RCTs are untrustworthy. So clearly these are touchy subjects. These are difficult subjects to talk about because we want to approach medicine with a certain degree of openness, honesty, trustworthiness. And we want to approach our relationships with the same style. But our relationship with the medical literature has to be different. And that's okay. That some degree of skepticism really is very healthy. There's a free podcast, Nature Podcast, available. I'll put it in the show notes. I'd encourage you to review it. Nature in 2023 July. Medicine is plagued by untrustworthy clinical trials. How many studies are faked or flawed by Van Noorden? And I'll put it in the show notes. It's a YouTube recording. You can listen to it. It's really a wonderful reading. The paper reviews a number of researchers that had looked at how much we can trust the medical literature. 
And if you don't know about John Carlyle, it's probably time that you do. Dr. Carlyle is a UK anesthesiologist. Dr. Carlyle is an anesthesiologist, but has another goal in his professional life to better understand how many studies are fake or flawed and how we can spot them. He's often been called the data detective. He's the editor of the journal Anesthesia, and in 2017 he set out to perform a study, and he published the study in 2021, and the study is called False Individual Patient Data and Zombie Randomized Controlled Trials Submitted to Anesthesia published in the journal Anesthesia. So in 2017, Dr. Carlyle decided to take a closer look at all the manuscripts that he handled as editor of Anesthesia, the journal Anesthesia. And he looked at all the randomized controlled trials. Over three years, he reviewed 500 studies. For most trials, he could not get access to individual patient data from the trial. The actual individual patient data entries. But he was able to get patient data for about 150 trials. And by studying individual patient data, or what's now come to be known as IPD, Dr. Carlisle felt that 44% of trials had some flawed data, impossible statistics, incorrect calculations, duplicated numbers. And he felt that 26% of papers had problems that were so widespread that the trial was impossible to trust. That's one in four. Carlisle went on to call these zombie trials. Zombie trials is a new term in the medical literature. They're trials that look like real research trials, but when you look closely, they're not. They're hollow shells masquerading as reliable information. And Dr. Carlisle estimated that one in 10 trials could be zombie trials. Dr. Carlisle proposes that Seeing IPD, or independent patient data in trials, is so important to spot something that is not quite right. And he encourages editors of journals worldwide who publish RCTs to consider asking for IPD data. When Carlisle didn't have permission to access the raw data and could only look at summarized aggregated data in tables, he could only determine that 1% were zombie trials and 2% had flawed data. But when all the data was available, that number went way up. 26% seriously flawed, 44% with some significant problems. So in his 2021 paper, Carlisle writes in the conclusion of his abstract that he thinks, quote, Journals should assume that all submitted papers are potentially flawed and editors should review individual patient data before publishing randomized controlled trials. Do check out the very nice podcast in Nature 2023. I'll put the the, uh, recording in the show notes. It's a very nice recording to listen to. Some very fascinating information. That nice recording or that nice paper in Nature, also highlights quotes from other researchers in other fields, not only Dr. Carlisle and his work as an editor in anesthesia, but one author who specializes in obstetrics and gynecology in Australia, Ben Mole, argues that as many as 
30% of RCTs in systematic reviews in women's health are suspect. And another researcher, Ian Roberts, an epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, states that, quote, if you search for all randomized trials on a topic, about a third will be fabricated. So clearly we have a high proportion of nicely done RCTs, randomized controlled trials. We can't forget that. There's a high proportion of very nice studies, but we have an unfortunate number of randomized, confabulated trials as well. So let's talk a bit about real-world data and how this complements randomized controlled trial data. Real-world data are the data that comes from the clinic. You've seen 100 patients treated with a drug. You pull out those 100 charts and you go and you look at how patients did. What side effects did they have? What patients stopped the drug early? What patients got nice results? That's real-world data. That's what we call real-world data. So real-world observational data can provide very complementary and much welcome data to RCTs. We absolutely need RCTs, but we need real-world data as well. And I think that's really important for listeners to be aware of that real-world data is very valuable. Real-world data provides us important evidence and it answers questions that RCTs cannot. It answers questions about uh, side effects in the long term. It answers some long-term data that RCTs cannot, as well as other things we'll talk about in a minute. So what are some of the benefits of real-world studies? Well, real-world studies provide realistic adherence data. There's no study coordinator to call you up, ask you if you're taking your medication. There's no one overseeing how things go. Patients in the real world forget to take their pills. Patients in the real world don't take things regularly. Patients in my practice forget their pills. Patients in my practice don't take things as it says in the consult note. That's okay. That's what being human is all about. But real world data is different than RCTs. And it's often said that real-world life, clinical data, doesn't always correspond perfectly with what's seen in randomized controlled trials. Why is that? Many reasons. But one of them is adherence. The other benefit is that real-world studies allow long-term monitoring and can therefore detect a rare side effect. If a side effect is rare, happens after many years of being on a drug, you're not going to get that in an RCT. You're going to get that in real-world data. Real-world data is less expensive. It can be used to determine risk factors and prognostic factors. It can be used to identify secular trends. And they can be used to generate risk models. The disadvantages of real-world studies is that they're not randomized. And so this lack of patient selection can lead to confounding factors. And this is hugely important. Real-world data is not subject to trial registration. And that is really, really important. You don't lock in your trial, what you're trying to show, what your endpoints are. And absolutely, that 
real-world data and some of the studies of observational design are subject to p-hacking, p-phishing is what it's called, subjective analyses and publication biases. We all know that data can be analyzed left, right, center, upside down to find some sort of a p-value that is significant. Why? Because we know that studies are more likely to be published if there's a positive finding or a significance between data. That's not necessarily good, but that's called p-hacking. Data is hacked every left, right, and center to find some sort of variable that seems to be correlated with something. That's called p-hacking, and that's a real problem. In summary, we, we need both RCTs and real-world data. These are both complementary. Both have their limitations and concerns. They have their advantages. They have their disadvantages. And it's up to researchers and journals and ethics boards and trial registration committees and all of us to help understand these limitations. But real-world studies and RCTs are indeed complementary. That's all I wanted to speak about this week. I want to thank you for listening. Next week we're back. We're talking about several very interesting studies of oral minoxidil. And for those of you who are keen to review the references for next week's podcast, I'll put them in the show notes too. The references for this week's podcast will be in the show notes. To connect with our office, to learn more about the training programs of the Donovan Hair Academy, you can email us at info at donovanhairacademy.com. For those of you who are interested in joining me for the 2024-2025 Evidence-Based Hair Fellowship Training Program, I remind you that we're just four weeks away from the deadline to apply. And you can contact us at info at donovanhairacademy.com for more information. I'll look forward to seeing you back here next week for another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. <music> <music>